Thank you, Kevin. Thank you to our worship team for your kind labor of love, preparing all of that and then leading us. Great hymns of testimony and songs of praise. Happy Father's Day, by the way. Um, some of you uh, are saying, I forgot. Others of you would say, I'm hoping other people in my household haven't forgotten. A uh, special day that our nation has set aside in observance of fathers. And I know Hallmark and other companies through the years have been very happy for days like these. We're glad to celebrate it with you. Um, mine got off to an interesting start, as Kristen and Seth would testify to. We were tooling up uh, 100 and whatever that is, 14th. And suddenly I look in the rearview mirror and there's a blue light and a red light flashing. And I'm saying, I think he wants me to pull over. <laughs> and sure enough, he did. And I handed him the appropriate information and he went back to his car and came back up and said, Mr. Brooks, slow it down. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> So, I'm very happy that uh, he didn't ask me to empty my wallet on the spot or uh, haul me away. And for those of you who are interested, I was going 12 over. Um, even my family would testify to the fact that I'm not usually the speeder in our family, am I? So, it's kind of a humorous moment. We don't need to put that out on the uh, website either as part of this recording. <laughs> Chad, you can edit it out. But I was sitting there, I was sitting there thinking... Oh, is this going to be one of those days? Um, I trust not. Uh, so, Wednesday, um, I was using the uh, white pages uh, to do a little research. This may seem funny to you, but I wanted to send my dad a card, and I couldn't remember his house number. And it's not the house I grew up in, unless you think, don't you know your own address? Well, no, it's a different house, and while I should know it by heart, you know, in these days of cell phones and email, uh, we just don't mail a lot of stuff anymore. So I jumped on the white pages, and uh, I, I was surprised to see how many uh, men living in the upstate of South Carolina actually bear the name James Brooks. That's my dad's name. And I know you can't quite see that, but this is what I was staring at. And one thing in particular struck me, there's actually another man who shares the full given name. James Arnold Brooks, and it reminded me of a, of a, at that time, strange phone call I had received a number of years ago asking if I knew the whereabouts of a James Brooks, and initially I'm thinking, well, of course, it's my dad, and like, who wants to know, and you try to be careful when you get a, a phone call like that, and it became clear to me in, in short order that while we were talking about an individual named James Brooks, the person they were talking about is not the one that I know. And even as I look through the white pages, there's some interesting stuff that shows up with the other James Brooks. There are family names attached to that, like Roxanne. I don't know any Roxanne. And I know my dad well enough. Some of you have like conspiratorial minds that just run down these paths. Well, maybe your dad has a double identity. I don't think so. And if you knew my dad, you'd be like, no, there's just no way. 
And I was reminded that it's possible for individuals to be talking about who they think is the same person, and yet it's just not. And the deeper you dig into that, the more you realize we are not talking about the same person. And so I've never met the other James Arnold Brooks who makes his living in the upstate of South Carolina, calls it home, even shares some of the same community addresses. But, but once we start digging in, we realize it, it's not the same person. And I'm not going to say he's an imaginary person. But, you know, that could even be a possibility that somebody has created a completely false identity. Now, I'm just thankful that the James Brooks I know is a man that I would want all of you to know. And even on a day like this, it's, it's wonderful to thank God and celebrate uh, the, the goodness that I've experienced through what I would say is the real James Brooks, the one and only James Arnold Brooks. As we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, we're, we're actually coming to a section in chapter 8 where the true identity of Jesus and the realities of his person are set forefront. They are of paramount importance for all of us. And they're of paramount importance because it actually has to do not just with with believing what is true and accurate about Jesus, but it actually determines the destiny for all of those who, who come into this discussion of the person and identity of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see is that while many people use the same name Jesus, not everyone understands the real person revealed to us in the Gospels, and in the Old Testament and New Testament as well, who lives and serves, who preaches and heals under this name, Jesus. And we're going to see in this portion before us that some have actually a corrupt, a faulty understanding of Jesus. And if you ask them about him, they would say, well, he is this, or he's like this, or he does these things, or this is his origin. There are others, like his own very disciples, who have what we might say is an inadequate or an immature understanding. They're on the right track, but their understanding needs to grow in some really important ways. But you know, all of us are called to a right understanding of who Jesus is in order that we might know him believe in Him, be saved by Him, and enjoy His person in a personal relationship forever. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Mark 8. And if you do not have a copy of the Bible, you are welcome to use one of the copies underneath the, the seats. You'll, you'll find one probably every other seat rack uh, in front of you. And if you'd like to even take one with you, we'd love for you to just take that as a little, uh, a little thank you gift. For being with us today, we'd love you to have a copy of, of the Scriptures for yourself. And so I'd like to, I'd like to read through this passage, and, and if you see on the screen there, as we read through this, I want us to listen to what Jesus says and what he highlights and emphasizes here in this passage about his person. And questions like, well, what is his real identity? What is his origin, his nature, his mission, and what is his gospel? The way we answer these are of utmost importance. Follow along as I read Mark 8, beginning in verse 14, uh, through the next several paragraphs. Now they, that is the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he, that is Jesus, cautioned them, saying, Watch out, 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not understand? Um, having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? And what I want you to notice here is I've even highlighted on the screen, that little word understand appears two different times. And in between uh, those two occurrences and the question marks at the end of those sentences are six other questions for them. And Jesus, in rapid fire succession, is, is essentially saying to them, do you not understand who I am? Now, the experiences that he's referring to are two different occasions where large crowds had gathered with him to hear him teach. And some of them had stayed so long with him that, that finding food for them became a real issue. And the last occasion that we covered in the last couple of weeks even here in our study in Mark's gospel was a crowd of about 4,000 people that had been with him three full days. They had run out of provisions. And so the Lord says to his disciples, let's feed them. And again, they're in the place of saying it's desolate. There's just, there's just not that kind of resource around here. And Jesus miraculously provides for them. So those are the two particular occasions where he has miraculously provided bread, and, he, and he's saying to these disciples, why are you having such a vigorous discussion about the need for bread when you've seen me provide all that we've needed and more? But he's actually making a, a very important spiritual point, and this is what I want you to see. When he, starts, when, when he is warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the, the leaven of Herod, he's actually pointing to a spiritual understanding in their souls. Now, a faulty understanding, we're going to see, will actually corrupt your faith. You say, what do you mean? Well, let's think through the illustration that Jesus gives. Any of you bread makers... I see four, five, a few other hands starting to, and I'm not going to call you out and like make you come up here and, and tell us your expertise, but you, you recognize what's going on here, don't you? Some of you might look at that and say, ooh, that, that's kind of gross. What is that? It's flour, and, and what's being added in there, you, you bread makers? Yeast, or leaven, to use the New Testament term, right? And, and you know that when you add this to it, it does really special things to that bread, Right? And one of the things is it gives it life, but it permeates it. It changes the nature of the flour and water or milk or whatever other ingredients that you've added there. And some of you would say, yeah, bread without yeast is not really bread. And so Jesus is not trying to say that leaven inherently or yeast inherently is a bad thing. He's just saying, he's using it to illustrate the fact that when, when leaven enters bread, it changes the, the nature of it. And typically in the New Testament, you will find that leaven becomes a symbol uh, not just of something that permeates, but actually corrupts. Sometimes it is a symbol for sin itself. And so I, I put that 
image there so you can kind of picture what Jesus is saying. So he's issuing a warning uh, about the leaven of the Pharisees. So leaven is a symbol for something that corrupts. And if you went to Matthew's gospel, you would see Jesus actually states very clearly that the teaching of the Pharisees is corrupted. It's got spiritual leaven in it. Or in Luke's gospel, the hypocrisy or corrupted practice of the Pharisees is described as, as a spiritual kind of leaven or yeast. And a faulty understanding will corrupt our faith. There's a second thing that's going on here, though, in this, in this passage, and that, if you look with me at verse 16, an immature understanding can corrupt our faith. It's clear that the disciples aren't mature to the point where they're, they're discussing the most important things. Jesus says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And then Jesus asks that series of eight questions, as I mentioned a moment ago, and every single one of those words drive at spiritual understanding. Do you not perceive? Do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And then he asks the same question twice, addressing two different occasions, but how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And then he summarizes it again in verse 21. Do you not yet understand? And their discussion demonstrates they don't fully understand. They're on mission with Jesus. There are more sermons to be preached. There's more healing that needs to take place. There are more people that need to be reached, and they're focused on whether they have enough bread. How are we going to split one loaf between 13 guys? It's not very much. And Man, I'm really hungry. Typical guys, right? The disciples, as one author writes, are anxious about lack of bread, but Jesus is anxious about their lack of faith. And that lack of faith is tied to their immature understanding. So whereas you have the, the Pharisees, as he's mentioned them, and even Herod, who have a corrupted faith, and we're going to explore this a little more in just a moment, they, they believe some things about Jesus, but they don't actually believe the right things or the correct things about Jesus. It's a corrupted faith. Here on the other side of this situation, you have disciples who understand some things about Jesus, but the understanding hasn't matured to the place where their thoughts go to the most important things in life. They're like the little kids in the back seat, as it were. Dad's got the family in the car. They're going on a trip. And, and just that stupid conversation breaks out in the back. Stop touching me. You're touching me. Dads have tried drawing lines, putting things between. And, and, and you know in your heart as a father when that stuff's going on, they're going to grow out of it. You just wish it would be now. And so that immaturity manifests itself in many different ways. And they're not arguing about bread. It's not that kind of a, a trip for them. But they're not actually thinking the thoughts of Christ and who he is. So look at the next portion of Scripture. Let's go into verse 22 because Jesus is actually going to heal another individual. But it's with a view of giving his disciples a clear understanding of who he is. Of deepening their understanding. Of maturing their faith. So you follow along again. They came to Bethsaida. Hey, can I give you a little neat sidebar here? If you break that name into the two parts um, and, and do a little study, the, the word Beth is the Hebrew word for house, and Saida is the Hebrew word for provision. And maybe a more familiar word would be Bethlehem. It's where Jesus was born, right? And that name means house of bread. Beth Saida means house of provision. And I think it's just neat, it's a little sidebar, that Jesus takes him to a place the actual location, house of provision, testimony to his greatness, but he's actually going to do things 
uh, that, that demonstrate he is powerful. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now, what's taking place here? Well, there's a significant need, and Jesus responds to this very urgent and personal request from the friends who bring the blind man to him. They beg him to touch him, verse 22 tells us, and, and I'm reminded again, we've seen this over and over in the Gospel of Mark, so we're not going to stop here again, but Jesus always responds to those urgent requests and prayers. He loves for people in need to come to him and say, this is our need, will you help us? But now look at verse 23, and notice what happens here. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. It's like he wants to do this privately. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And here's the answer. I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now we read that, and every one of us has an idea of what this man is experiencing at that particular point. And I found a picture that might try to capture some of that for you. It's blurry. He knows that they're people but he can't define all the specific characteristics about them. He could not describe to you some of the particulars that if his eyes were functioning perfectly and the focus was clear, that, that he could state at that particular point. So I pause and ask you, it's the best description he can give, but is it actually an accurate description of the people who are in front of him? Like trees. I don't think anybody here wants to be described as a tree. Maybe in some occasions where a guy is strong as an oak tree or he's, you know, he's just built solid, he is thick, you know, like a, a tree trunk. Maybe. <laughs> Even then, some of us are a little nervous, right? It's clear the man doesn't have clarity of vision. And so while we would say it's an honest, sincere description, it doesn't actually reflect reality because we know people are not trees. And so there is an inaccurate vision. Do you know this is the only miracle found in the Gospels where Jesus healed someone progressively? And that makes us stop and think, well, why would he do that? Everybody else has been healed, like, in a moment. Jesus speaks a word or he touches them. And they're healed completely. But there's progression. I think it's in the context of the story, he's, he's teaching his disciples something. I think he's trying to help them see that they don't actually have the clearest of vision. They understand some things about him, but their vision is not yet where it ought to be. And so verse 25 says, Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. There it is. It's, it's now distinct, and people no longer look like trees. One of the commentators that I have been blessed by in my study of Mark's gospel writes, the ability to see both physically and spiritually is a gift of God, not of human ability. We hear nothing of the man's faith in this story or his behavior. There is no hint that as his faith grew, his healing progressed. His healing 
from failed sight to partial sight to complete sight comes solely from the repeated touch of Jesus. His healing exemplifies the situation of the disciples who move through the same three stages in Mark, from non-understanding to misunderstanding to complete understanding. We're still a couple of chapters away from where these disciples will understand Jesus fully for who He is. So now we come back to the, the spiritual truth and the lesson that Jesus has underway. So he, he heals to give clear understanding. And, and He is trying to make the point to the disciples, you're like this blind man. You see some things, but you don't see as clearly as you may think you do. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you though. Because Jesus has the power to give that clarity of vision. So go back to the text with me. And now let's look at verses 27 um, through 33. Jesus takes them to Caesarea Philippi. Now that's another city that's north. And here's another little sidebar for you. Caesarea Philippi, as the name might indicate, was, was established by the Romans with a view of honoring Caesar. Um, it was a location where there was all kinds of alternative worship that was taking place. The most prominent worship was to the, the god Pan. And he's half human, half creature. Uh, there, even to this day, you can visit uh, a site in that area uh, where they have carved out actually multiple grottos, and they probably would have put idols in that place. And uh, many of those Pan worshipers would have come uh, to bow before him, to make their offerings, uh, to enter into all kinds of, of worship. And so they're headed to that particular area, and Mark records that on the way, verse 27, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Now we're going to go back, we're tying this into the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Because if you surveyed people in that day and age, you'd find all kinds of answers. So look at the text with me again, because here are some of the options that these disciples offer. Verse 28, they told him, John the Baptist. That's actually what Herod had said. He thought Jesus was a reincarnated John the Baptist. Others said Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And those two accounts would be uh, just a couple of chapters before this, and you who've been here for the series might recall uh, some of those conversations. But here's a question for you. Are any of these opinions accurate? They're talking about Jesus. If you ask the Pharisees, they would say, oh yes, we know who Jesus is, but we believe that he is one of the prophets. Or as Nicodemus said, we believe that you are sent from God. That's accurate to a point, but they're not willing to affirm that he is actually the Messiah. So it would be an inaccurate opinion from the Pharisees' perspective. How about Herod? He knows that there's something supernatural going on. This man preaches and teaches with authority. Herod's intrigued by him, wants to see him both teach and perform miracles apparently. But, but he concludes this must be John the Baptist reincarnated. Is that accurate? Well, well no. All kinds of opinions, and these are just three of the ones that the disciples offer. Now, here is, here is where we need to go in our thinking, because this is one of the points that Mark is making. A corrupted view of Jesus ultimately corrupts your faith in that Jesus. You say, what do you mean? If you fail to understand Jesus correctly, then your faith and belief in Him inevitably is flawed. 
A Jesus who is nothing more than John the Baptist reincarnated cannot save you from your sin and give you the gift of eternal life. A Jesus who is simply a great prophet, but not the only begotten Son of God sent into the world to save us from our sins, cannot save you. The whole work of Jesus' life and death and resurrection depends upon His being the eternal Son of the Most High God. And your salvation and mine depends upon Jesus' true identity. Not one that we have made up in in and of ourselves, not one that we have manufactured. And you know, there are actually all kinds of ideas about Jesus that have been taught through thousands of years. You say, what do you mean? Let me give you some examples. And there are actually specific terms that have been given to these, but I'm just going to try to describe them. There was a group almost 2,000 years ago, right, I mean, this was just after Christ had, had ascended to heaven and uh, completed his earthly ministry, but some said, you know, he's God, but he's not really human. And so they denied the full humanity of Jesus. There was another group not too long after them that said, well, we believe he's human, but he's not actually God. Well, that's not an accurate description of him. There's a third group that said, well, Jesus is a created being who became a God. You know, these are what we would actually call heresies. They're inaccurate. They're actually false in their description and false in their teaching. And any form of these Things like these that would try to redefine or reinterpret what both the Old and the New Testament tell us concerning Jesus will result in a faith itself that cannot save you. There are others. I was thinking that, you know, there's a, there's a well-known group, a very committed religious group, but that teaches today that Jesus is actually Michael the archangel. Well, we would say that's inaccurate because that's not what Jesus claimed and that's not what the scriptures teach us. There's another religion that believes Jesus was a great prophet, but not God. And then actually God, God raised another greater prophet even than Jesus, who through the centuries has spoken for God. There's some who believe that Jesus himself is a created being, the spirit child of an exalted man. But these are inaccurate. And even with a sincere faith placed in these false Jesus or inaccurate truths concerning Jesus will lead you not only down the path of of a corrupted faith, but will lead you to a place where you will not be saved by the real Jesus. You see why it's so important? You see why Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Look at your text again. Because he wants these these disciples to recognize that what they personally believe and what they testify to is of eternal importance. And Jesus asked the question because it is eternally important that we know his true identity so that as we place our faith in him, it rests in reality, not in some corrupted version or some false version. And my friends, if you are putting your faith in a Jesus who does not exist, then your faith, well-intentioned as it may be, cannot save you. There's only one real Jesus. 
So who do you say that he is? Let me illustrate it this way. This is chair number one. And this is chair number two. Both chairs are similar. Both have legs, a seat, a back. Both chairs are sturdy. This chair is actually a little more attractive to me than this chair. I like these chairs. We bought them a year ago. They've served us well. But this chair, it is fashioned from some of the finest oak that's available to mankind. And that beautiful stain, don't you admire it? And look at the craftsmanship that's gone into this chair. Now, I look at both of these chairs and I say, I think both would support me if I sat down in them. I have faith that this chair will support me, and I have great faith that this chair will support me. I'm sincere in my faith. As a matter of fact, my father and my grandfather have taught me much about this beautifully stained, handcrafted oak chair, and I love it. This chair has been in my family for generations. This is newer to me, and I'm not sure about this. And so if I come and stand here, and I begin to lower myself, you're, you're saying, he's lost his mind, right? <laughs> and, and if I begin to sit down, and some of you are like, somebody stop him, somebody help him, because your eyes are not deceiving you. And I'm not trying to be a charlatan myself and deceive you. I'm simply trying to illustrate that there's not actually a chair here. And all the faith in the world that I may have in my heart concerning this particular chair does not mean I will actually find a seat to rest in. It's not real. And that's my great concern with some of the things that have been taught through the centuries and are being taught even now about Jesus Christ. It's ultimately not real. And I'm concerned because there are groups that in Jesus' day and there are groups in our day who have great faith, sincere faith, and earnest faith, but it's faith in something that doesn't exist. But this chair is real. And I can not only sit down and rest, I could stand on this thing, collapse in this thing, and it's been well built. You know what? I can also have weak faith. But because this chair is built solidly, even if I'm nervous right now and not willing to put all my weight on it, it'll support whatever weight I put. You know, that's one reason that Jesus said, if you have faith like the grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. My friends, it's not about the quality or quantity of your faith that saves you in the end. It's about the object in which you put your faith. And the question is, before us today, who do you say that Jesus is? The disciples need to learn this. Their understanding needs to deepen, not just so that they will be saved from an eternity apart from Christ and the just punishment that God pours out upon those who have rejected him, but so that they can enter into a personal life of faith with him and know the blessing, the comfort, the peace, the control, the direction, the provision, all of those things that God has revealed to us about himself in Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, if you look at the text again here as we come to a conclusion. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers so simply and so powerfully. He says, you are the Christ. 
Now, Mark doesn't go into great explanation at this particular point, but let me fill in some of those things, because that's not just a term that we sometimes associate with Jesus, or even the fact that sometimes people think that's part of Jesus' name. Do you know that Christ is actually a title? It's a special title that God has reserved for His one and only. It's the equivalent in the Old Testament, if you read through, of the word Messiah. It's the one that God ordained and anointed for this special and unique role as uh, anointed Savior. He is God's singular prophet. There were many other great prophets, from Moses all the way through to John the Baptist, but Jesus stands superior to all for eternity. He is so far above every other prophet that the gap between Jesus and Moses and John the Baptist is infinite. He's not only that uniquely anointed Savior and prophet, but as you can see, he is God's appointed great high priest, the one chosen after a special order of priesthood, Hebrews tells us, the order of Melchizedek. It makes him superior to Aaron. His priesthood is the reason that we didn't bring animals to church today or have to find a a particular sacred location like the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. His priesthood extends the worship throughout the nations. And he is also God's exalted king. We sang some great lines in those hymns and gospel songs earlier, didn't we? He is king forever. He is king over all. That means he's king over my sin, he's king over my guilt, he's king over my life, he's king over my eternal destiny. And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, he is affirming by faith what all the prophets who preceded them foretold, and he is affirming everything that Jesus has established and demonstrated and taught to that particular moment. In this brief phrase, Peter testifies with all clarity that Jesus the Christ stands alone in this place of anointing and authority and his capacity as Savior. Here's the all-important question for us this morning. How do you answer this same question? How do you answer this question? And with good intention, you may say, well, I've always thought of Jesus as a great religious leader, a great prophet. That's that's good as far as it goes, but are you beginning to see that he's so much more than that? Or maybe you, even like the Pharisees, have said, we acknowledge that something supernatural seems to be going on, but he is not God's Messiah. Oh, that's a dangerous, that's, that's a corrupting misunderstanding that will ultimately lead you to a path of of great loss, great suffering. Faith expresses itself in a public confession of Jesus. And neither faith nor confession, this author writes, is a proxy vote. You know, that's why in one sense, from Jesus' perspective with his disciples at the moment, it doesn't matter what other people are saying about him. He wants to know, Peter, James, John, all the rest of you, who do you say that I am? And you can't believe on behalf of somebody else, and no one else can believe for you. That's the nature of proxy, right? How do you answer this question? Knowing the truth about Jesus does two things. First of all, it actually shapes your faith. And again, corrupted understanding, corrupted faith. You throw in some leaven, 
into this, it's, it's going to impact the whole loaf that you're trying to make. I'm also going to just suggest for some of you to consider, it's hard to trust someone you don't know. And your situation may not be that you've just rejected Jesus, you just don't know much about him. And I get it. It's hard to trust in someone that you don't know. And if you don't understand that, that Jesus Christ has always been God, he's described as the everlasting Father. God the Son has no beginning, no end, but in agreement with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, he entered the world and became a man fully, lived a perfect life, died a substitute death. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't guilty of anything, but but died in order to rescue people like us from our sin, from our guilt. Ascended to glory again, where God has exalted him to his right hand, king forevermore. And if you don't know that he is sovereign and good, that he's holy and merciful, that he's just and gracious, that he is the good shepherd he provides, he's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is the doorway to eternal life. He is the sacrifice for your sins and the great high priest who ever lives to pray for you. If you don't know those things, it's really hard, if not impossible, to trust him. But even today, he stands before you, spiritually speaking, as it were, through the, through the word and through my feeble attempt to preach it and says, believe on me. And not just believe that I am some kind of a being, but believe me for who I reveal myself to be. What you know about Jesus will impact the way you live for him. And then secondly, it does determine your destiny. We've read a number of scriptures in recent weeks that remind us again that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. He said it himself. And the apostles picked up on this. And if you read some of their sermons, one of those is found in Acts 4, verse 12. And it says very simply, these are the words of Peter. He's preaching a message of Jesus Christ. And he says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I know that's hard. And some would like to say that that just doesn't seem kind. There are many sincere people in the world who have a different faith. I know, but we, we submit our hearts to the words that Christ has given us. And if he says, I am the way, the truth, the life, we believe him. Who do you say that he is? Would you bow your heads with me, please? I'm going to give you an opportunity to reflect just quietly and privately the things that we have looked at from the scriptures this morning. May I just say that if you are here today and you say, I, I want to know more. I'm intrigued by this. I'm troubled by this. Or I even just feel like something's happening in my soul right now. Like an awakening is going on. Or we would love to help you. But one of the first steps would be to just respond in faith and say, Lord Jesus, I don't understand a lot of things about you, but I, I believe from my heart that you are the Christ. That is, you are God's specially anointed one. You are the one sent into the world to save me from my sin, and I, I want this life. I want you. Would you pray that to him right now?
God in heaven, how thankful we are that you have revealed yourself to us, not only through your word, but through your son. Thank you that to see Jesus is to see God the Father. Thank you that to hear him speak is to hear your voice. Thank you for all that he accomplished in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. I pray today that you would correct our misunderstandings and preserve us from a corrupted faith. And you would give to us a right understanding of who you are. That each person here would humbly bow before you from their heart. For those who need to be strengthened in their faith, do it. For those who need to come to you, move them. You are the Christ. And we praise you for this truth. As you continue to pray for another moment, let me just encourage you to be open and honest as you sense God speaking to your heart. What does he want from you? What do you want to tell him right now? Just speak to him silently, but from your heart. In just a moment, Kevin's going to come and we're going to have an opportunity to sing and then uh, we're going to have a special opportunity for Jessica's baptism. And you'll even be able to hear her story of how God opened her eyes to some of the very truths that we are looking at in Mark's gospel this morning. So you just continue to think through quietly. Kevin, you come and you lead us.